1: Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 358th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Obviously, I am not Chuck Buck. I'm Dr. Erica Reamer, sitting in for Chuck Buck this morning. Today's Talk 10 Tuesday is brought to you by the American Health Information Management Association. We know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my guest co-host and good friend, Dr. Juliette Ugarte Hopkins. Juliette is the physician advisor for case management utilization, and clinical documentation at ProHealthcare in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Good morning, Juliet. Thanks for co-hosting with me today.
2: You're very welcome. Good morning, Erica, and hello, everyone.
1: Our lead story this morning is about reporting and coding separate procedures.
2: It's really what coders need to know.
1: Nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor Terry Fletcher is standing by to report our lead story.
2: And speaking of codes, Lori Johnson will be reporting on the upcoming Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting.
1: I can't wait. I always look forward to those meetings. The 2019 meeting will take place next Tuesday and Wednesday, and you too can participate by phone.
2: And returning to Talk 10 Tuesday is Rose Dunn. Rose will continue her reporting on the revenue cycle.
1: And later in the broadcast, I'm going to expand on my Talk Back segment from last week about how hard to push to get a provider to answer a query. I think you and I should discuss it. I'm interested in hearing your perspective on the query process. Well, we have much news to report during today's Talk 10 Tuesday, and we begin with ICD 10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to download the four part EM webcast series, now available on demand. To download, click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday.
1: Here now is Tim Powell.
0: Thanks, Erica. There's
3: a lot of interest today in computer-assisted coding, or CAC. The proponents say it will reduce costs, coding backlogs, and discharge not final bill claims. There are several companies in this space, the largest being 3M, with over $30 billion a year in revenue. CAC is part of a larger move into artificial intelligence, or AI. Many companies, including healthcare companies, would like to replace costly humans with computers. In the 1960s, the TV show The Twilight Zone had an episode in which a man running a manufacturing plant turns to robots to reduce costs and increase efficiency. In the episode, Wallace v. Whipple replaces people with robots despite the stern warnings of the employees. The show ends with Mr. Whipple drinking in a bar, angrily complaining as his robot doppelganger sits in his chair at the office smoking a cigar. All the humans are gone, replaced by robots that look like people. With CAC, we do not have human-looking robots sitting at desks coding accounts. We have computer software matching data from electronic medical records to diagnosis and procedure codes. The benefits of CAC include the fact that it is fast, scalable, consistent, and accurate based on the data included in the medical record. There's no coding backlogs as the CAC software can run through unlimited claims in a fraction fraction of a second. It never codes for things that are not in the medical record. The first problem with CAC is what they call GIGO, garbage in and garbage out. CAC depends on the assumption that the medical record is complete and accurate. Let's take evaluation and management services as an example. The computer can look at the electronic medical record and find documentation of the patient's history and physical. It can look for the documentation of the review of systems, and it can look at the amount of time that the patient, from the, the, the patient was admitted until the patient was discharged. Software can then give a code for the service. What is needed is to know if all the data is being correctly loaded into the system and if the data is accurate. Did the physician really have the face time the medical record states? The second issue is oversight in the coding process, which I think is the biggest problem. When healthcare providers are doing manual coding, there is at least some communication between HIM and billing. All the stakeholders in the revenue cycle usually meet regularly to discuss challenges. Overdependence on CAC can break down this communication. Compounding this is the fact that computers make mistakes faster than humans. In conclusion, CAC can increase consistency and accuracy in the coding process like any other revenue cycle process, it will require daily oversight and making sure that the documentation actually supports the coding. And with that, back to you, Erica.
1: Thanks, Tim. That was Timothy Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, February 26th, 2019. And I'm Dr. Erica Reamer, sitting in today for Chuck Buck. You're listening to the 358th edition of Talk 10 Tuesdays. Stand by.
0: Accomplish big things in little time. AHIMA's on-demand coding webinars offer a timely, flexible solution to keep pace with rapid changes happening in the health information industry. Walk away with new knowledge and know-how. All you need is an hour. AHIMA's 2019 coding webinars cover topics including the value of a complete quality coding audit program, improving revenue integrity, the new frontier for HIM professionals, APR, DRG comprehension, phases, steps, and subclasses, plus other subjects. Visit ahemastore.org to browse all topics. As we mentioned at the top of the
1: broadcast, Rose Dunn is here today. Rose is a nationally recognized HIM expert and past American Health Information Management Association president. Rose continues her series on the revenue cycle and how HIM can play a role in
4: other areas of the revenue cycle. Here now is the aforementioned Rose Dunn. Thanks, Erica. You know, last month I defined revenue cycle. The revenue cycle is the compilation of activities from pre-admission to post-discharge that contribute to collecting our entitled reimbursement. Because of the many inputs to the cycle, there are opportunities for errors. And where there are errors, there is a need for robust auditing. Auditing not only supports the quality of data we submit on our claims, but also the integrity of the revenue we collect. We had a question last month from listener Lisa about the auditor's role. I don't intend to discuss the traditional coding audits of codes assigned by coders because this audience is well aware of these. Because the revenue cycle spans from pre-admission through to the final collection of the payment, there are a lot of other opportunities for auditing professionals. Let's talk about four of them. The first one is the problem list accuracy. Problem lists are a problem because they are rarely accurate. CDI and coding professionals should be more involved with maintaining problem lists to take the burden off the physician and to ensure it is not only uh, accurately reflecting the current acute, but also the actual chronic conditions for our patients. Often we see long resolved conditions appearing on the problem list. Maintaining an accurate problem list will contribute to data integrity and also serve as a guide of conditions for the providers to consider when assessing the health of their patients. The next area is hard codes. Are we seeing rejections or denials associated with services that are hard coded through the charge description master? If so, that's a cue for our auditors to step in. We should avoid having services outside the 70,000 and 80,000 ranges hard-coded. We need our coding professionals to assess the procedure performed to accurately reflect and apply the correct CPT. While we're discussing the CDM, is it accurate? Many activities within the revenue cycle are driven by the CDM. Charges for the conditions and procedures that are represented by our coding must be supported by the CDM charge codes. And CPTs change annually. If the charges for the new CPT codes are not entered into the CDM, we have the potential for lost revenues. I encourage coding professionals to learn more about the nuances of CDM. It is seen as a revenue driver for the healthcare organization and so the CDM manager is often a member of the finance department, considered a key contributor to revenue planning for the organization, and involved in new patient care initiatives, a great opportunity for HIM professionals. Now, once we've ensured that charges are accurately linked to the CPT codes in our CDM, we need to shadow the charge from service to claim to ensure that the charge lands on the claim for everything we did. This means that we need to conduct charge audits on a fairly routine basis to determine was a charge applied for each service. Did the right charge land on the right claim? Did we miss charges? And if so, what and why and is there a pattern? Did we charge at the correct frequency level? For example, I saw a claim recently where the patient had seven colonoscopies, ouch. The so logic to ensure that charges land on the correct claim in the correct quantity with the right charge and bundle or edit out when appropriate must be defined in the claim processing system. Someone needs to ensure the logic is precisely programmed. When issues are identified through the audits, the logic may need to be modified or expanded. This is another opportunity for HIM professionals who enjoy technology and databases. Following the performance improvement cycle, we would then re-review the charge flow to ensure our changes corrected the problems that were identified. Done is done for now. Back to you, Juliet.
2: Thanks, Rose. That was Rose Dunn. Rose is the chief operations officer for First Class Solutions and a past president of AHIMA. Erica.
1: Thanks, Juliet. And thank you, Rose. Seven colonoscopies. I will say, ouch, too. Here now, with the latest information on next week's Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, is Lori
5: Johnson. Good morning, Erica, and good morning, Juliet. Today, my topic is the upcoming Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting, which is scheduled for March 5th and 6th. I have posted the tentative agendas in the Handouts tab. I have also posted the methods to watch and or listen to the meeting. Please note that on March 5th, you can only ask questions if you are attending in person. Questions from the listening audience can be submitted through the CMS ICD-10 Procedure Code Request mailbox. And I provided that email address to you in the Logistics tab. The tentative agenda for procedures includes cerebral embolic protection during transcatheter aortic valve replacement, insertion of brachytherapy device, treatment of unruptured intracranial aneurysm using flow diverter stent, renal function monitoring, angioplasty with sustained release drug-eluting stent for above knee arteries, ECMO for intra procedural support, Endovascular arteriovenous fistula creation using magnetic-guided radiofrequency energy and venous embolization, and T-tube bacteria panel. Also, administration of these drugs and medications, Kapli- Kapli- zoomab, which is an immunoglobin, to treat acquired thrombotic thrombocytopenia purpura, Contipo, which is treatment of complicated UTIs, Elzonris, which is treatment for blastic pl- plasitoid dendritic cell neoplasms, Venclexta, which is for acute myeloid leukemia and chronic lymphocytic leukemia, and small lymphocytic leukemia. Saspata, which is for relapsed or refractory FLT3M plus acute myeloid leukemia. rel which is drug resistant bacterial infection treatment. Azedra, which is for pheochromocytoma and paraganglioma systemic anti-neoplastic medication and jacafi which is treatment for polycythemia vera. For the diagnosis portion, which will be discussed on March 6, 2019, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, the topics are unspecified use of alcohol or cocaine with withdrawal, babesiosis, congenital vascular hematomas, corneal dystrophy, juvenile osteochondrosis, macular hole degeneration, neonatal cerebral infarction, osteopenia of the hip, Sjogren's syndrome, and social determinants of health. So that was quite a mouthful today, but back to you, Juliet.
2: Thanks, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions LLC. Erica?
1: Thanks, Juliet, and thank you very much, Lori. I will be very sad if I will not be able to ask my questions in real time anymore. Oh, well. Our lead story this morning is about reporting and coding separate procedures. Here to report on why this is important is nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor, Terry Fletcher.
6: Thank you, Erica. Good morning, everyone. In my segment today, I wanted to talk to you about separate procedures, also hidden codes within a code, but I like to call I Can Code for That. I like to challenge coders to think outside the box at times when coding for professional physician services. You may have thought certain things traditionally were just not reported, but sometimes when we step out of the box and really look at the CPT rules, the NCCI edits, and consider the encounter, you will ask yourself, can I code for that? So first let's look at the designation of a separate procedure. It may not mean what you think it does. Many procedural codes in the CPT book are designed as separate procedures. However, there has been many incorrect interpretations of the rules for separate procedures. Before you can make a decision to capture a separate procedure designated code, you first must consider were there other procedures performed during the same encounter? Did you consult the National Correct Coding uh, edits And did the other procedures coded at the same encounter include the base code? You can always identify a designated separate procedure by the parenthetical inclusion of separate procedure at the end of the CPT code description. For example, 29870, arthroscopy knee, diagnostic with or without synovial biopsy, and then in parentheses it says separate procedure. This designation identifies a procedure that may be performed independently or as part of a more extensive procedure depending on the circumstances. CPT surgery guidelines state some of the procedures or services listed in CPT in the CPT codebook are commonly carried out as an integral component of a total service or procedure that has been identified by the inclusion of the term separate procedure. These codes designated as separate procedures should not be reported in addition to the code for the total procedure or service for which it is considered an integral component. But in lay terms, what this means is that if a separate procedure is performed during a more extensive procedure, in which it is typically included, it's not separately reported. But if a separate procedure is performed alone or with another procedure of which it is typically not a part of, it may be separately reported. So in the example 29870, it may be reported by itself to describe the scope of the knee, but it is not reported separately or reimbursed with another arthroscopic procedure in the same knee, for example, an arthroscopic medial meniscus repair, and that would be the 29882. For the first code what we would call is a look-see and then when it's determined to continue with a more extensive procedure the repair then only that code is reported also for further confirmation if you check your most recent version of cpi edits you'll see that 29870 is bundled or inclusive of 29882 which is the more extensive service but a modifier allows the code pair edits and that includes the one indicator for you to override the edit and report the diagnostic scope separately under the right circumstances. So for example, if the diagnostic scope and the surgical scope procedure were performed in separate means, 29870 may be reported separately with a 59 modifier or even a more specific subset modifier of 59, which could be the XS modifier, meaning separate site or separate service. You also might wanna code the or add the appropriate LT or RT, those are the right and left side modifiers, to both those codes to designate which procedure occurred on which knee. Because CPT doesn't provide a complete list of codes to which a separate procedure may be bundled, unless you have a full clinical understanding of this procedure performed, how can you know whether for certain the procedure is or is not truly separate? So first you wanna look at that CCI edit to determine if a designated separate procedure triggers any edits, and then also look in some of your encoder products you may have some in your software that can also show you this. And if you don't, also don't um, think that the NCCI edits are absolute. Even some designated procedures, even if they may trigger an audit, you wanna look at the indicators within those edits to see if you can code for it. So for that example before, a one indicator means you may be able to code for it, code for it but a zero indicator means you cannot record it, uh, report it separately. Also in the surgery guidelines, when you're looking at separate procedure, Make sure that you know it is distinct, independent, or different site or different organ system. You're really looking for that separate injury, separate lesion, separate excision, or something that can show that it is independent. As an example with GI procedures, if your GI physician performed a basic colonoscopy, 45378, this is a designated procedure, designated separate procedure. But if the colonoscopy also included a polyp removal by snare, you would only code the 45385, and 45378 would be bundled or, again, inclusive of that service. But if you went on and the physician coded an EGD at the same encounter as a base colonoscopy, then because those are two separate sites, two separate procedures, then you may be able to code both of those services with a modifier. So a challenge with physician coders out there to look outside your comfort zone to determine if, in fact, there are coding opportunities where maybe you didn't realize I can code for that. Rules and guidelines exist for a reason to guide us to the correct and compliant way of doing things, but there are exceptions to knowing when those rules uh, can be uh, looked at, and your due diligence uh, will let you know if you can cope for it. Juliet, back to you.
2: Thank you, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a nationally recognized professional physician coder and auditor. Erica? Thanks,
1: Juliet, and thank you again, Terry. And you can read Terry's reporting on this important topic of today's ICD-10 monitor. I'm going to revisit my talkback topic from last week about the query process. After that, Juliet and I will discuss this issue, and we invite you to join the conversation by sending in your questions or comments. I'd like to first apologize for our technical difficulties last week. I was really sorry we <laughs> were unable to archive it because I thought it was really an important topic, and I was really good last week. Chuck suggested I re-present it, but I didn't want to punish those of you who had listened in real time. So I decided to expand upon it today. The topic was how persistent clinical documentation integrity personnel should be in closing out a query. To recap, and we have posted my script from last week online, I asserted that the goal should be 100% response rate. 85% leaves 15% of your queries on the table. If you didn't think they were important, you wouldn't have composed them. Just closing the query isn't enough. I have worked in systems where the practitioner signs the query without providing a response. This is unacceptable behavior and should be monitored, measured, and squelched. Next, I listed the numerous ways that folks try to get queries in front of their providers, including paper, phone, text, email, and on computerized systems, and face-to-face. I mentioned a Cetus in my old system who would wait weekly in a provider's office until he would let her come in and talk to him. Wouldn't that wreak havoc on your productivity Sorry, productivity metrics? During the pre-show chat last week, psychiatrist Dr. H. Stephen Moffick and I had a discussion regarding the subject. He offered to do a counterpoint to my firm position that providers should be expected to close out queries until he heard my complete thought process. Dr. Moffick's concern, and I share it, was that providers are becoming burned out because they are being tasked to do do more and more in the same amount of time with less resources. Sound familiar? I believe everyone should be treated with respect and consideration regardless of job title. Just because you have an MD at the end of your name does not mean you are better than anyone else. However, I do support working at the top of your license. When I worked in the ED, I was just as capable of putting a patient on a bedpan as anyone else but having providers perform tasks that others could be doing means they can't be doing the things that only they can do. No one else can document instead of them. No one else can answer a query meant for them. So, is it reasonable to meet a provider wherever they are to get them to answer their queries? My recommendation is that the CDI management team and some legitimate uh, representative of the practicing clinicians Collaborate to devise the right system for your organization with your available technology. It needs to fit into the provider's workflow and needs to be standardized. You can choose to make exceptions for the rare provider, but I think it is best for everyone if there is one mechanism and everyone knows what it is and how to comply. Most organizations are devising dashboards or scorecards and holding their providers accountable. There needs to be a way to let them know They still have outstanding queries. Give them formative feedback and comparative data with their peers. Help them be successful. But you are professionals, and they should treat you as such. Your productivity is important to the institution. They can't have you chasing a provider around to get a query or two closed. It is your responsibility to compose the query. It is their professional responsibility to answer it. I'm going to repeat myself from last week, what we in CDI do is important and valuable to the provider and the system. Providers are not doing us a favor by answering our queries. We are in essence doing them a favor by sifting through their suboptimal documentation, finding opportunities and presenting them for improvement so that they get credit for taking care of as sick and complex patients as they do. The administration needs to facilitate the process and encourage cooperation. The provider and hospital's quality metrics and financial viability may very well depend on it. So, Juliet, what is your reaction? What do you think?
2: I really agree with a lot of what you're saying, if not really all of it. I mean, the idea that there should be a goal of anything less than 100% when it comes to a query answer rate is, a, I think that's... Not doing anyone any favors, you really should be trying to get 100. Now, of course, is that going to happen? Probably not. Although I will say at my two hospitals, we do hit it every once in a while. We'll have a number of months where we have every single query that's answered. Um, So that definitely should be a goal. And I also agree with you that there needs to be a process set into place that's going to work for all of the docs and that is something that they're held accountable to. If you have an EHR system that all of the docs are using to get messages from their offices, other offices, they're being notified that a patient has a question. You know, If they're getting these Epic messages or if you use Cerner or another system, then that should be utilized also for these CDI queries or coding queries even. If it's something they're already using, there's no reason why it can't be used in that fashion. And I think it really is beholden on the med staff too for your hospitals to make sure that you're working with the CDI team And making sure that that's an expectation and that that's something that all the docs know um, that they need to do on a regular basis. I think really establishing, too, having a timeline where everybody knows what the timeline is, how long they have to get something done, and then in a stepwise fashion, make sure it's escalated from there using your physician advisor is also key. It shouldn't just be left um, out into the open and then not have any sort of attention paid to it if it simply isn't answered, or as you said, is answered by simply signing it off but not really giving an answer. And I even take it as far as the unable to determine. In some of those instances, that's something that I might take a second look at as the physician advisor and reach out to that doc and just have a conversation with them about, really, I, I just wanna talk this through and see um, exactly that you weren't able to determine this, or was it that this was the simple button to push to get it out of your queue?
1: That's a really good point, Juliet. And, you know, I have to actually say that one of my suggestions to CDI teams is maybe having unable to determine is not really a legitimate answer for your query. Um, You know, if you have clinical indicators and somebody has, you know, there's got to be something that goes with it, and unable to determine doesn't always seem to be, like, really a viable option. I do think your point is really well taken. I think that in addition to making a situation where you've got a process for the queries to be posed to the physicians, you need to have some sort of escalation process where the physician advisor has to inter, you know, if they have to intercede and get it done. Don't you agree?
2: Yep, absolutely. And this is definitely one arena that the physician advisor can really work as a champion for CDI and coding. Even if there's not anything else that that physician advisor is doing with those teams because their role is more in the utilization management, case management arena, this can really be a big impact just to be that doc who's out there and talking with the physicians about their queries and really kind of making sure that this loop is closed. Well, they have to be the
1: enforcer. Well, I think that that's that's going to be a wrap for our 358th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Juliet and I want to thank our panelists today. Terry Fletcher, Lori Johnson, Timothy Powell, and Rose Dunn. And I personally want to thank Dr. Juliet Ugarte-Hopkins for co-hosting with me today. Thank you, Juliet. You can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. Listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Be sure to be with us next Tuesday for our live coverage of the CMS Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. I'm Dr. Erica Reamer, sending in today for Chuck Buck and reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you, Juliet, and thank you all for being with us today, and we hope to see you next week.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.